The real estate market in Queensland operates differently to the rest of the country in a number of ways. For starters, vendors and their agents are required to disclose very little to buyers about a property they're selling. And it's also the state where purchasers can most easily waive their cooling off rights. It's something I'm not sure investors from the southern states are aware of because if they were, they'd be more wary of venturing to buy there without expert advice. But that's another area of difference. It's the easiest state to get a Class 1 real estate licence in and buyers agents in particular need zero experience before being allowed to set up business there. And then there's the Queensland government's attitude to investors and some well-publicised backflips to a conceived policy in recent years. And lately, I've noticed a growing awareness about how 25-year management rights agreements are being sold with new apartment complexes and our strata owners have been on the losing end. Seems like the Wild West up there. What the hell's going on? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, I'm joined by the CEO of the Real Estate Institute of Queensland, that's the REIQ, Antonia Mercarella. She is a lawyer by profession and for the last two decades, she's headed up legal counsel for the industry's peak bodies in South Australia and later in Queensland, where she's also served as the CEO for the last nine years. And as the REIQ's first female CEO and its youngest at appointment date, Antonia has transformed the 105-year-old institute into one of the most progressive and high-profile industry associations in Australia. Antonia has led and shaped some of the most significant real estate legislative reforms across multiple jurisdictions, and her ability to lead and develop advocacy programs has drawn national and international attention. She has been described as a powerhouse, and in a moment you're going to find out why. Thank you so much for coming along today, Antonia. It's great to be with you, Veronica. It's been a long time coming, this one. I've been trying to get you on for about six months, I think. Now, I understand that the Queensland Parliament is looking at new legislation for the property sector. So perhaps we can kick off this conversation with uh, you giving us an overview of what will change if this passes. Yeah, it's a great place to start, actually. Uh, We have been, uh, it's been such a busy period, enormous amounts of legislative change up here, uh, some of it in the rental space. But in terms of what's uh, in Parliament at the moment, there's a couple of bills floating around. Uh, One uh, relates to the introduction and establishment of a statutory disclosure regime, which you've just mentioned in your intro. We don't have a uniform or single statutory disclosure regime, uh, and that's one of the key elements of that piece of proposed legislation. Uh, That particular piece of legislation has been recommended for passage by the Parliamentary Committee, uh, and we can talk more about the specifics. But basically, it will introduce a uniform statutory disclosure regime, uh, and that means buyers will be given a document with a bunch of prescribed disclosures before entering into the contract. Uh, And then the second piece of legislation or proposed legislation uh, that's in the House at the moment 
uh, it relates to body corporate related amendments. So these are lots in what we call a CTS sc a scheme, uh, so community title scheme. So basically apartments and units and again, uh, that piece of legislation relates to um, all of those issues like pets, uh, smoke, drift, um, cars that uh, park in areas that are, are, are desi aren't designed for visitors, all of those really controversial issues that arise when you live in an apartment or a, a unit complex. Yes, it's meaty, meaty stuff that, isn't it? Um, I, and look, I know one of the weird things that people perhaps are not aware of is that, that every single state and territory has different legislation in this area because the property industry is, is a state-based uh, industry effectively. Um, so with the disclosures, and this is what always fascinated me. So, um, you know, I've put together a course for, um, new buyers agents, and I've also put together a course for first home buyers to learn the process of buying property. And my co-founder of that home buyer academy is, is a Queensland or Brisbane based buyers agent. So we've gone through the legislation and as it pertains to buying property across the country. And I was absolutely shocked when I discovered how little it is currently that um, that buyers uh, have as a right to request and, and if not, they have to know all the questions to ask and where to get the information before they can make a, a, a wise decision, if you like, or a wide open, eyes wide open decision. What sort of things are we talking about that will be added into those or what sort of prescribed documents are we talking about here? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's right. I think people often misunderstand and assume that property transactions are governed by national uniform legislation, but you're quite right, It's it's it varies across the jurisdictions. And I think um, I was certainly was surprised when I moved up here to discover that there's very little pre-contract disclosure that's required. Uh, and of course, you can always uh, ask um, for certain disclosures to be made, but usually the way it works up here is that you'll enter into a contract um, and then, of course, your solicitor, who's responsible for the conveyancing process, will certainly recommend certain searches. But, of course, the reality is, is by that stage, you've already entered into the contract. Um, and so it may be too late, even if those searches reveal something that is materially significant, uh, your rights to terminate may be limited. What we've done as a peak body, Veronica, is in our standard contract, which is endorsed by the Queensland Law Society, We've created a series of vendor warranties that's all in the fine print at the back. Um, and and depending on what on what that particular matter is, so for example, if a vendor hasn't disclosed something that our contract says that they should have, it does potentially give rise to termination rights or it gives rises it gives rise to to damages. Um, but of course, uh, even though our contract is the most uh, utilized, it's not the prescribed contract, and it may be that, uh, people enter into a different kind of contract that doesn't give them the same level of contractual protection. So, certainly as a peak body, we have uh, we have long advocated for the establishment of a uniform disclosure regime, just to ensure that, irrespective of the contract you're using, that there's uniformity in what every buyer or prospective buyer receives in Queensland. Uh, to answer your question about what specifically is going to be in there, that's yet to be um, determined. Uh, we we have a really good sense of what we believe will be, will end up in there, um, 
but ultimately uh, the actual nature of the disclosure document is yet to be determined. That will that will go into the regulation. Um, but what will happen is there'll be a statutory framework that 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 allows that to happen. But the sorts of things that we understand that will go in there are are the things that you would expect. It'll be a, a, a copy of the certificate of title. So that's going to tell you certain information about the property, its legal description. It's going to let you know, for example, if there's a caveat lodged on there, if there are any registered interests that, that are of concern. Um, unregistered statutory encumbrances, uh, I beg your pardon, unregistered encumbrances uh, is something that we understand will also need to be disclosed. Uh, contaminated land will need to be potentially disclosed. Again, this is all subject yet to finalisation. Um, and then, of course, you'll have things in there, as you would expect, around um, safety switches, smoke alarms, uh, any uh, neighbourhood dispute. So this is in relation to fences and trees. Uh, and was it a plan by any chance? Uh, survey plans need to be included uh, pot potentially, um, and uh, and then there's also if you are selling a uh, if it's a, a unit or a uh, an apartment, then of course that triggers a whole series of other types of disclosures, and they're going to be all the things that you would expect around um, what kind of money, what kind of balance is sitting in the admin fund, the sinking fund. Are there any? Are there any disputes? So that's going to be a disclosure that I think is really important. Any any um, legal proceedings that might impact the property or any threatened legal proceedings that impact the property, all of those sorts of things that are really materially significant when it comes to, to buying a property. A vast improvement. So we should look at that with great um, excitement. Now, as a buyer's agent, and I used to be a sales agent, I don't know if you know that, so I get both sides of the equation here. Um, but as a sales agent, that's going to require a lot of rolling out, you know, or with sales agents, I should say, that there's a lot more sales agents out there than there are buyer's agents. There's going to be a hell of a lot of rolling out on education across the whole industry. And, of course, not everybody's even a member of the RAIQ. So, so in terms of the government's got a responsibility, I guess, to get that message out. But you you as the RAIQ have an extraordinarily important part, you know, role to play there. Um, how long do you think it typically takes to get, um, because there's a huge education, and agents have to then learn what these documents even are, because it, quite at the moment, they can just stick their head in the sand, I don't need to worry about that, I don't have to worry about it, I just have to sell the house or the, or the apartment. It's absolutely going to be, I think, a really fundamental shift. I appreciate that people listening to this podcast in other jurisdictions probably won't understand its significance. Uh, if you've been accustomed to having to, to prepare this. But for Queensland, it will be quite, quite different. Uh, certainly, I think as the peak body, we'll have a really instrumental role to play. Whenever there's legislative change, uh, we're always, that impacts real estate practitioners, we are always the first organisation to step up. Um, it'd be nice, uh, you know, something that's not well understood is that we receive absolutely zero dollars in funding from the state government or from any government for that matter. Uh, and again, we have spent um, countless amounts of, of money over the years educating the real estate sector on legislative change. And, um, and we do that because we take that role really seriously. 
Um, and look, we've always taken the position as well that we're actually going to try and every single real estate professional, whether they're a member or not. Um, we think that's really important. Obviously, we would prefer that real estate professionals make the choice to be a member of ours, but we don't shut the door on that, on non-members, Veronica, because at the end of the day, it's in our best interests as the peak body to ensure that every single real estate professional out there is doing the right thing and is compliant. So um, we understand that there'll be a, uh, a transitional period so once that bill is passed, it won't Im it won't commence immediately. Um, I think we'll probably see that they'll provide. I would expect a run up period of around twelve months. I think, and that's something that both we've asked for, and I know that also Queensland Law Society has asked for the the same thing because you can appreciate that there is a lot of work that is required and lots of training that is required to ensure that when the new legislation starts that everybody actually knows what they're doing. Yeah, a huge amount. And in fact, something I forgot, another thing that is different in Queensland to anywhere else uh, that I totally forgot to include in the intro is about the um, where it's illegal to give a price guide. Um, yes. with an auction campaign or if it's not a, a property that's being advertised at a price, you can't give a price guide. So that would have been something that the REIQ would have been instrumental in in rolling out and educating all your uh, members in terms of how to avoid giving price guides to, <laughs> to buyers. It's fascinating to watch the reaction from people outside of Queensland. Uh, again, I think that's one that really surprises people. So here in Queensland, as you've just stated, if you are selling a residential property only, by the way, so residency property, you can't give any kind of a price guide or you can't make any representation as to price. And similarly, if your vendor has instructed you to sell without a price, then clearly no price guides can be given. What you are allowed to give, though, is a comparative market analysis or a CMA, as we call it. Uh, so that's permissible, provided that your vendor gives consent to that. But again, um, that's something that often surprises people who are from interstate. Surprisingly, though, here in Queensland, even before the Property Occupations Act started in 2014, um, it's it's kind of always been the way that Queensland has operated that um, as a general rule up here, if I think about when I moved here in uh, 2011, I think it was, it was something that I noticed that no, that it was very unusual to see an auction um, with any kind of a price attached. So again, it's one of those things that is a bit of a quirky Queensland uh, thing. <laughs> Now, talk about quirky Queensland things. Um, the Queensland government has been the poster child for trying to get through a number of in investor-unfriendly legislation um, since COVID, really. And you and the other lob and a number of other lobbyists have really succeeded in getting into backflip on a number of these policies. Why do you think they go half cocked? Oh, you know, in the first place. I mean, it does seem like there's. It, it really does seem like they shoot from they shoot first and then ask questions later. Um, I mean, A, congratulations on, on some pretty good changes there, but B, why? What is the deal? I wish I knew how to answer that. Uh, so we've had a – yeah, look, I think uh, it is frustrating. There's no doubt about it, and it's great when we do manage to um, affect a backflip, to use your words. 
but goodness me, the time and effort and energy that gets invested into that is is um, it, it's it's pretty serious. I don't I don't know. I think sometimes what happens is that um, investors are perceived in a certain way. I would say there. I, I'm seeing it across Australia, but in Queensland in particular, there seems to be this perception that, um, well, they're investors, they therefore are more sophisticated, they are therefore wealthier, um, so let's go for them. So we saw, of course, um, we, we've seen a, so, sort of a few things over the years during covid Obviously, uh, the the federal government announced a, a COVID uh, eviction moratorium. That was well understood. But you might remember that then our government uh, and our housing minister of the day came out and really took those measures, those legislative measures, and just went really extreme on them. Um, yep. And, of course, we then managed to get them to, to pair it back to be more consistent with what was happening across the rest of the country and, and the 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 example there is that um you didn't have to prove that you were COVID impacted as a tenant and if you couldn't pay rent or you were paying reduced rent you never had to pay it back um which we thought was ridiculous and went far beyond what any other Australian jurisdiction was implementing so we did get a backflip on that and then we did manage to get something more reasonable then we had more general stage one rental law reforms where, again, they were proposing some really extreme measures. And again, um, following a, a really strong campaign, we managed to get a little bit more balance. And then, of course, the big uh, the big one was the uh, introduction of this multi-jurisdictional land tax regime where if you owned property in Queensland, uh, you would be paying land tax based on the value of your land holdings across Australia rather than just paying land tax based on what you owned within the borders of Queensland. And again, we managed to get them to do a backflip on on that one. I can't answer the question as to why they go down that path of, um, you know, because everybody ends up spending so much time and energy. It's, it's an embarrassing outcome for government. Um, you know, we don't enjoy it, to, despite the perception that that we're we're you know I don't I, we as a peak body and again as an organisation that receives zero dollars of funding, um, you know we don't have the kinds of resources at our fingertips to be spending all of our days running advocacy campaigns. Uh, you know, there's lots of other work we'd like to be doing that's a lot more positive. Um, but of course, we can't let that stuff go when we see that this that there's proposed legislative reform that's going to be really damaging, not just for investors, but we would argue also for the community at large. Um, it would be remiss of us and irresponsible not to jump on it and and lobby hard against it. But um, uh, but it is it is tiring and uh, and it is exhausting and unfortunate. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I think you you did a pretty amazing job. I saw a lot of your press re your, your um press releases and um and uh, interviews on that, and I often thought to myself, you must be just pulling your hair out, thinking this is just insane. And 
Not only that, but I mean, you know, I think it's good to draw the distinction. You're your peak body for the industry. You're not peak body for investors or owners or, or anybody else. You know what I mean? It, this is, and it, we're all linked, of course, because it's, we're all in housing. But yeah, it's a bit ridiculous. And of course, now we just, I guess, all eyes are turning to Victoria and seeing what happens down there. But I think that the other thing too, I mean, as a, I mean, some other media that you're involved in this year, as, as a CEO of a, of a real estate institute, you do need to wear a number of hats. You know, on one one hand, you're working hard to lift industry standards. On the other hand, you know, you're lobbying government, advocating for the industry, and by proxy, you know, property investors, as we were just talking about. Um, some months back, probably March, I think it was, there was uh, a story on Four Corners, and you were interviewed um, called the Agents of Change story, right? How do you manage the challenge of representing an industry which in some cases has a well-deserved poor reputation and yet not come across as if you're defending poor practice? I mean, it's a delicate balance, right? Yeah, I think it's such an important question and 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 thank you for pointing out. I think often there's a misunderstanding of our role and that we are pro-investor and therefore anti-tenant or pro-vendor and not pro... Like, at the end of the day... We are the peak body. What we're fighting for are the right statutory and regulatory settings to enable everyone who's involved in a real estate transaction to do that as efficiently and seamlessly and painlessly as possible. And sometimes I get really frustrated at the fact that we are um, depicted in a certain way. We do an enormous amount of work. I'm really proud of the work we've done in the tenant space. I'm really proud of the work we've done in relation to domestic and family violence or in relation to Queenslanders with disability and, and making properties more accessible. So there's all of this really great work that we do that's community orientated and is actually helping a variety of different groups. And we don't get a lot of attention, sadly, um, because often what you see of us is us fighting the government in relation to um, legislation that is really, we think, quite anti-investor in nature and therefore we get depicted in a certain way, which which is challenging. Um, and then to your question, there's no doubt, Veronica, that it can be a really challenging sector to represent. I've been working in the real estate sector. I'm a lawyer by background, but I've been working in the real estate sector for over 20 years now. And I can tell you that there's a reason I stick around for that long. I love this sector. There's there's some really extraordinary people, and I know um, people across a, a variety of, of jurisdictions. And I think, like any profession, like any industry, there's there's good eggs and then there's bad eggs. Um, it does feel like though the bad eggs are really good at getting lots of attention, which is unfortunate. And um, there's no doubt that there are days where I feel really embarrassed about the conduct of some of the people uh, who are in this profession, whether it be people who are based here in Queensland or people who are based around Australia. I think that's really unfortunate. And, um, and I think to your question about that particular show, I think there's a lot of CEOs who would perhaps say no to that interview. But I think it's really important that we acknowledge that there is bad conduct. We look silly not acknowledging that. Um, and I think, you know, for me, it was really important to be part of that particular um, program because uh, uh, because 
I, I didn't, I don't want the community to think that I shy away from that. As someone who represents this sector, I think we have to be accountable um, as a peak body for the conduct of every single person who works in real estate. And, and I know that I, together with my colleagues here at the REIQ, that we work really hard to, to look for ways to improve conduct, to raise levels of professionalism. Um, you know, we, we meet, Veronica, just so it doesn't just sound like lip service because I know lots of peak bodies say that stuff, but I can tell you hand on heart, we sit down with the Office of Fair Trading once a quarter. Um, we're constantly working with them to find ways that we can improve compliance. We meet with the Residential Tenancies Authority on a regular basis. We work with uh, tenant-aligned groups. We work with uh, Q Shelter. We work with community housing organisations. We work with lots of different groups. So much of the work we do as an organisation is actually community orientated and trying to educate real estate agents about um, how to be better at what they do. And um, and we don't shy away from those really tough conversations. You know, every now and again, you'll get media who wants to talk to you and they'll tell you about the story and it makes you cringe. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember one of the most recent examples was... Um, Again, a story ABC was doing about discrimination. Uh, people in our community who were being discriminated against, seemingly, on the basis of, of their skin colour or on the basis of the fact that they were from a non-English speaking background. Now, that that really saddens me. You can appreciate my surname is a dead giveaway. Um, uh, you know, that sort of stuff... You know, it's really easy to say, I'm not going to do that interview, but I thought it was really important to do that interview, to hear the story. And 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 it does make you feel like there are days where you feel like you're failing. Um, but at the end of the day, I know that the vast majority of the real estate community up here, I know them. I know them personally. I'm, I'm spending time with them all the time. I know that they're really good, decent people. But yes, there are a handful who are not, and they get lots of media attention. And, and you know, I'm on the record many, many times as saying, I would dearly love to see the regulator throwing the book at them. Nothing would make me happier than that. And I actually think that most good real estate agents would agree with me. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, it is one of those sectors that cops a lot of flack. Um, but equally, um, some of the conduct, I, I can see why we've got the reputation that we've developed. So yeah. there's pl plenty more work to be done. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephant in the room.com.au. Well, it's great. And I and I think what rang through to me when I heard you on that particular program was that 
this idea of lifting our sights and our expectations in terms of the behaviour and also obviously training and education, which sort of leads me to the next thing I want to talk about with you because you are probably aware that some new agents are fast-tracking across the country, are fast-tracking their licensing by getting qualified in Queensland uh, and then applying for mutual recognition in other states so that they can set up a business quicker, right? So I'm not talking about getting started in the industry and working through effectively as an apprentice uh, arrangement. I'm talking about fast tracking to go straight to becoming a, a licensee in charge, right? And of course, we do have an issue with an industry that that can be easy to get into, where there's potential to make a lot of money. You know, so those two things, you know, low barrier to entry and potential for big earnings, often don't combine to create the best of practice unless people have learned along the way from good good practitioners. So, what is the ROI? REIQ's position on bringing Queensland in line with other states, say like New South Wales and Victoria? Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting because we actually saw a lift in the educational standards here in Queensland. Uh, I think what the issue is, there's a, there's a few issues. Um, so th- there's there's the educational qualification that gets mandated. So you've got uh, you've got that sort of determined. There's a package that gets determined at a federal level and then at a state and territory level, the regulator will decide what they're going to nominate. And I do know what you're referring to. We've heard these stories of registered training organisations in Queensland offering these courses to people who don't reside in Queensland and they come here and it's, uh, you know, I often say it's every child wins a prize with some of these RTOs and I won't name any. Um, and we are an RTO for full transparency, um, and it is incredibly frustrating for us um, to see that happening. Um, there's a couple of reasons I say that, Veronica. Now, you know, someone watching and listening to this podcast might think that I'm saying that simply because we miss out on the dollars as an RTO. That's not what I'm aggrieved about. We welcome competition. The difference is, yes, we are a training organ, a registered training organisation, but we're also the peak body. And because we wear those two hats, we take our responsibilities as an RTO really seriously. And if you choose our course, we will actually make you work for it. We will, you know, we will. It, we've been told it's it's not an easy course. It takes time, and it, it, it you know, if if the answers aren't the right answers, will make you resubmit. And again, I have to be careful what I say here, but again, um, what we know is that there's some RTOs out there that really do make it really simple. It's it's not just about it's cheap and it's really easy and you're almost guaranteed an outcome. And, and what you've got to remember is when people are picking that RTO, um, that RTO won't ever see that person again, Veronica. Because it's a it's an isolated transaction. You pay them, you get your qual, and off you go. The difference is when you come through our course, we're the peak body. We actually want you to succeed, and we want to make sure that we're training you and setting you up for success. Um, so it, it is uh, a source of continual frustration for us as well. Uh, and uh, and 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 what I also find really fascinating, and it's not limited to Queensland, I might add. I, I think I've observed this in across multiple jurisdictions. But real estate is one of the most strictly regulated professions or industries in Australia. If you look at our legislation, you can't sneeze without without following the statutory criteria, right? 
really big, really big penalties potentially as well. And yet the training that you need to do, the threshold training is really quite, quite basic. And then what's worse here in Queensland is there's no requirement to maintain any form of professional development. Now, if you're an REIQ member, then we have a requirement for continuing professional development. But if you're not an REIQ member, which of course is not compulsory, um, then you could have done your course 20, 30, 40 years ago and you've never stepped foot into a classroom or done any training since. Now, we think that's 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 pretty appalling and I think the community would agree that that's pretty appalling, particularly when you consider, and this is where I, I guess the point I'm getting to is this, you've got this really strict legislation with, with you know, it, it's it's very militant in the way that it requires you to carry out your role. There's these big hefty penalties if you stuff it up, to use a technical term, and yet, and yet you don't have sufficient resourcing, in my view, for the regulator to actually go after those who do the wrong thing. And also, you just don't have the educational framework, both in terms of threshold requirements and ongoing requirements. Now, to be fair, we are we have been told that mandatory CPD is coming after a decade-long, um, you know, uh, effort from us to try and get that. But again, what we need to see is we need to see government getting serious about recognising the incredibly important work that real estate practitioners do. Keep in mind that real estate agents are in, they owe a fiduciary obligation to their clients. Now, you know, that puts them in the same category as a lawyer and their clients and a medical practitioner and their clients. That's pretty extraordinary stuff. You've got, at any point in time, millions of dollars sitting in your trust account um, and you are helping people to sell and buy what is probably going to be the most important asset uh, that they own or that they're buying um, or, or you're managing their most significant assets. So it, it kind of, I'm always amazed at the, the level of responsibility that a real estate practitioner has and yet uh, the, 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 there's this kind of mismatch, if you like, between the level of responsibility that the law imposes but then the educational requirements and, and I guess the enforcement action um, that we would expect uh, there to be is, is lacking in, in my view. I hundred percent agree, and it's the same in every state you know that I've had any involvement with. And say New South Wales, for argument, say we've got compulsory CPD, but we've still got that problem with the uh, the the low barrier to entry. I mean, we do have some minimum uh, work experience, if you like, before you can become a Class One licensee and and run your own agency. So there's a, a few little extra hurdles, and you do have to have a full diploma as opposed to just one extra subject, which is the 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 situation in Queensland at the moment. But still, even so, it's a very low. Um, educational requirement in the whole scheme of things when you do think about, like you're saying, the responsibility that we have. I mean, property as a as an asset class in this country is by far number one, by far. It, you know, if you add commercial, and I'm saying residential property, if you add commercial property, um, superannuation and the share market together, they're, they're what's uh, something like $7.7 trillion value and the, and the property, residential property is now worth $10 trillion in this country. So, and yet, the, uh, practitioners aren't required to have anything more than diploma to run a business, you know, and assert for to be to um, be a practitioner. 
So I, I 100% agree. REIV is a bit the same as you guys. In, in Victoria, it's only members who need to do CPD points. And there's no other state or territory in this country, uh, ACT accepting, sorry, that is required to do, um, you know, ongoing education. So I'm glad to hear that it's a bugbear for you. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, a, it's a massive bugbear for us, huge. And so is it something that... I guess what I look at too, I mean, our state government here, they, they sort of make a lot of noises. You know, the Office of Fair Trading in New South Wales is making noises around this. And they have made some changes to the ways in which uh, CPD is um, administered, shall we say. Um, and so, you know, maybe they are moving in that direction. But like you talk about the um, the impos- uh, what's the, um, the enforcement of regulations or the enforcement of legislation is, is very you know, it's it's it sort of flares up every now and then when there's some media stories that point the bone, at, you know, point the uh, the finger at these things. And so, is it something that REIQ sort of says, look, we should actually be making it more difficult for people to get into the industry because you know, yes, you're an RTO, yes, your course is more robust than those um, some of those private, you know, we we call it like getting your license out of a cornflake packet, that that type of um, license. Um, and I remember when I did mine a long time ago now, but I did mine with an RTO. I'd started through the TAFE system and then everything changed. It became harder and I had to do seven subjects. And I'm like, that's crazy. I ne- Previously, I only had one to do. So then I went instead and did it over five nights at an RTO. It cost me two grand. And they actually gave us the answers to all these, or to all the uh, exams at the end. of It was ridiculous, including trust accounting. That's crazy. Just yeah. insane. <laughs> um but you know, but I had a lot of experience by that time. I had seven years' experience, and and I'd also done most. I'd done trust accounting at TAFE, and I'd done all these things at TAFE. So for me, I was like, this is just outrageous. But I'm just getting a tick in a box, you know. So is it something that the REIQ would like to do to actually make it harder to become an agent? Yeah, we we absolutely look. I think what we want to see is a level of education that reflects the level of responsibility that real estate practitioners accept when they take this role on so again we're not suggesting um you know we want to get we want to get that balance right uh but i think i think most of us would agree that particularly if you're going to become a real estate principal um which involves the management of a trust account holding millions of dollars potentially or you know in trust uh, obviously being responsible for your employees and those who, who you engage all of that stuff is incredibly important and we just need to make sure that the levels of education are set at, at, at the right at the right level and that there is a requirement to continue to learn because as we talked about at the outset of today's um, podcast, legislative change is constant in this in this space. I've got to say, I mean I'm a lawyer by background and I I have been struggling to keep up. It has been, the last five years in Queensland has been phenomenal. It's been a moving feast. Um, it's just been nonstop. And I'm often wondering how people, how real estate practitioners who aren't our members and don't receive our communication and our training resources and support materials, I don't know how they go about keeping up. It terrifies me. Um, so I think... I think education is absolutely of key importance. And I think, especially when you consider, I think you said earlier on about 
um, the threshold to entry is low and, and I guess the capacity to earn is arguably uncapped, that, that can be a really um, concerning combination. And, you know, let's be honest, I know that not every real estate agent is, is earning millions of dollars per annum, even though that is the perception in the community. Um, but the reality is you can make a significant amount of money as a real estate practitioner. I know real estate agents who earn more money than, than uh, you know, barristers or surgeons. Like it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And I think when you consider that, um, it's not just about earning capacity, to be clear, but I think that is a factor that is important. And But more than anything, as I say, it's for me, it's about the significance of the role. Uh, for me, it's about, it, it, it's right up there, you know, when, when you think that, and remember here in Queensland, another key difference is real estate agents in Queensland can actually facilitate the contract from start to finish. It doesn't end up getting handballed off to a lawyer in Queensland. So we've got real estate agents not just negotiating the key terms, they are actually getting the parties to contract stage and to execution of contracts. So that is a pretty considerable responsibility. Uh, and I just think we need to make sure that 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 level of responsibility is reflected in the training requirements at threshold entry and and on an ongoing basis. It is a considerable responsibility, but especially in light of the fact that there's so little disclosure there currently. And so there you've got buyers who are then in the hands of a real estate agent effectively can put the contract together and the real estate agent should know more than them, may not, um, you know, and the real estate agent may not be a member of the REIQ, may not do any training, may put these things together. Buyers unwittingly, oh, okay, you can do that, no worries. You know what I mean? Like they don't know what they don't know. So they don't know what clauses to put in that contract. They don't know what conditions, you know. And it, it, that in itself for me, that when I mentioned about the Wild West, that is a horrific um, situation where buyers are completely unrepresented and, you know, they wave their own – I mean, it's, it's a lot tougher to wave a cooling-off period in New South Wales. You can't do it unless you go to auction or you get a lawyer or, or conveyancer to read and explain the, the contract and what you're signing up to before you can do that, whereas you can just send an email in Queensland. That's all right. I don't need a cooling-off period. Uh, do it's quite bizarre. So I think, you know, the, part of the education I think has to be consumers. Consumers need to understand what they're doing as well. You know, I know that um, – I talk a lot about, you know, the reputation of real estate agents. I am a real estate agent. Uh, it's obviously something very close to my heart and and well-deserved sometimes that, that there's a bad reputation out there, as we mentioned. Uh, some are not um, worthy of the, the mantle. However, um, buyers need to take responsibility for a very significant transaction. So to try to sort of pass all the blame on to somebody else is, is also a bit disingenuous in my view. Do we have time to quickly talk about these strata management rights and the this, this situation there? Can you give us a quick overview of, of what that is? Yeah, sure. Um, and it's just interesting on that last point. Uh, we spend a lot of time uh, doing education for the community about buyers' rights. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we, you know at, at various points over the years, we've had sort of weekly spots on radio stations and weekly spots in print media. And a lot of that 
is around educating buyers about these are the things you need to consider before you enter into a contract. Um, but yes, to your point, I think also sometimes buyers don't understand that if the real estate agent is acting for the vendor, that it's it's their job to act for the vendor. And I think sometimes buyers assume that somehow the agent will also be responsible for looking after their best interests. Now, of course, there's consumer law protection that extends to the buyer, but ultimately um, the agent, if they're acting for the vendor, is looking after their client's best interests. And of course, um, you know, we have seen you know, I'm not going to say that we've got a an even number of buyers agents versus sales agents, but I will say that we have seen a, a sort of a fairly significant uh, uh, increase in the number of buyers agents here in Queensland. So, so that's something. Do you actually know how many buyers agents are in Queensland? Because yeah, nobody knows. Nobody knows how many buyers agents are actually in this country. No, well, well, look, I'll, I'll tell you sort of why that's an interesting question. It's because here in Queensland. Um, if so, Office of Fair Trading issues the license or what we call the the registration certificate. But ultimately, in Queensland, and I suspect it's the same in most jurisdictions, is that once you've got that, you you've got your educational qualification, and then you go off to the Office of Fair Trading or the equivalent in other jurisdictions, and they'll give you either a license or they'll give you what we call a registration certificate. And once you've got that, Veronica, you can effectively uh, you can. Uh, sell residential real estate, sell commercial real estate, manage resi and commercial commercial real estate. Be a buyer's agent, be a business broker. Um, uh, you, you know, you, you can do the lot. And and of course, even though we use those titles, business broker, property manager, um, buyer's agent, they they're made up, they're fabricated titles. If you like, we've kind of created them. Industry has created them to reflect that you've decided to specialise in a particular area. But, of course, there's no such thing at a it, – it's not a legal description and there's certainly no reference to any of those titles in our in our legislation. So, so the answer to your question is I don't know. Um, we know that there's, um, there's a certain number of, of buyers agents in Queensland who, uh, who will very proudly tell you they do nothing other than act – buyers they won't do any sales work uh, and that's their choice but of course there are people who might dabble they might do mostly sales but every now and again they might act on behalf of a buyer and that's permissible and lawful so the answer to that question is I don't know because you can't know it's not possible to know I know it's cracks me up and this you know this concept that like even a business broker yes I've been a real estate agent now for 23 years you know, I've been a buyer's agent now for nearly 17 and, and it's like I couldn't possibly think that I could just suddenly go and become a business broker. But but I could, I could because of my, my qualification. But, you know, it's, that's just the, the heart of insult to somebody who's actually experienced in a field to say, right, well, I'm just going to be one of you now. It's just like. Yeah. Oh, I mean, but especially selling a business, right, it's, it's. Uh, and even then, what kind of a business? Uh, I, I mean, then there's there's being a there's being a business broker, and then there's deciding what type of businesses you're going to sell. Um, so that's a whole other that's a whole other thing again. Uh, but but I know that I, well, I know that our regulators wanted to simplify things and streamline them, and not put a burden on the industry. And I'm like, oh, you know, sometimes I think we need a bit of a burden. But anyway, yeah, I know it's it's funny the way you've got this again. There's a bit of a mismatch between 
you know, what they do at a legislative level. And then you've got this rhetoric around, oh, um, you know, reduction of red tape, creating sort of, you know, you don't want to stifle mobility. Uh, you don't want to, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about barriers to entry and not making things too onerous. And it's, and again, I understand all of those things. I really do. But, but, but then you've got this really strict legislation. And so it, it's hard to see how those things, how those two things reconcile. Uh, but to your question about what's happening around, I guess, that strata space and around department and unit living, it's a fascinating area. Um, I'm intrigued by it because what's happening is I think the law is really struggling to keep up in relation to this issue. And so you've got this legislative change that's happening to try and better uh, manage the relationships that people have um, when they live in these sorts of complexes. So that's what I talked about earlier, things like, can I smoke in my apartment on the balcony? Can I park my car there? Can I have a pet? There's, there's that. And then, of course, there's also this argument about when developers build these complexes, uh, they then sell the management rights to people who come along and, and buy them. Um, and, of course, they spend a considerable amount of money buying those management rights. Um, and, of course, they're going to want a return on investment. And then on the other side of that, as you're probably aware, there's this argument around the fact that these contracts, these management rights terms are long and that people feel trapped and feel like they can't affect change and they're paying all of this money to management rights operators who, in some instances, there's arguments that they're not doing a very good job or that they're, they're charging excessive fees. Uh, so that that's a really controversial topic and as you can appreciate there's lots of different stakeholders who are at very uh, uh, you know at very different ends of the spectrum because of course developers will argue that that their ability to sell those management rights is important and you know there's an argument that that enables them to i guess um manage the cost of that development if you like and that if you weren't able to do that that then means that you'll have to sell at a different price point and then the community gets impacted by that or the buyer's community gets impacted by that. But then at the other end, you've got people who live in those complexes feeling like um, they're stuck in a relationship with these management rights providers who may not have, um, you know, it's important to understand, just like we've talked about uh, today in terms of educational qualifications, sometimes these are people who, might say, well, what can we do with our lives? Let's go spend some money and buy management rights. Um, they do need to have a particular qualification and then become, um, they do need to get a special type of license to do that. But again, that argument um, is, is triggered again in terms of do they actually have the necessary skills and attributes to do that job successfully? Um, sometimes they do, but arguably sometimes they don't. Some of them might be members of the RRQ too, right? <laughs> Strata managers. So, because of course, you know, if you have bought into a building which has a management right in place that somebody has purchased, and maybe it's 10 years or 25 years, depending on the type of um, building it is, then you're not able, if for poor performance, you're not able to basically kick them out. You, you're forced to stay with them. So, it's uh, it's an interesting commitment to, to voice on new purchases 
of of a um of part or of some community title properties. Yeah. So do you think that that will change, or do you think that the developers' lobby is too strong and the will is not there? Yeah. Look, I think it's. Uh, I think there's a lot. There's some really big controversial decisions that are looming at the moment. So there's that one. So this is obviously where a developer or a builder uh, can say, actually, I'm terminating. Um, so that's another really controversial issue. And we say that's, that the right to be able to do that is should be preserved. But again, we don't want to see that being exploited. We don't want we – did, we did see a few instances of that um, where right at the 11th hour, builders were pulling the pin, terminating the contract, and then putting those properties back on the market shortly thereafter, which, again, without knowing exactly what was at play, it did appear to be a bit of exploitation and taking advantage of really good, strong market conditions. And and again, back to, I guess, the sale of management rights. Look, I think there's no doubt that developers can make considerable amounts of money off the back of selling those, those, those management rights. Um, I think realistically obviously it's not really in our wheelhouse we don't really get involved in that space so I don't pretend to have an intimate understanding of those issues but at a really superficial level I think if you start taking away the right of a developer to be able to sell those management rights then obviously that is missed that is missed revenue and inevitably, depending on the size of that revenue, there is an argument that that's going to get added, therefore, to the cost of, of the development and it, and it will mean that the, the purchase price probably, therefore, reflects that. So I think like anything, you know, these are really difficult conversations that are really complex, but the reality is we can't just keep sweeping this stuff under the carpet because more, more and more of us are choosing to live and this type of accommodation, and we've got to get this stuff right. We can't just run and hide and put it in the too hard basket, despite the temptation to do so. Uh, so we'll we'll have to wait and see where that lands. But I think I think you've got to be able to look at the pros and cons, understand all the different stakeholder interests, and ultimately you've got to try and find a decision that's the right one. And it probably means everyone is a little bit cheesed off at the end of the day. Everyone feels a little bit like they didn't get quite what they wanted. And, you know, I always think as someone who used to do mediations, it's probably not a bad outcome if everyone's <laughs> feeling like they got a little bit of something, but they didn't get everything. So it's not win-win, it's cheese, cheese. Cheese, yeah, <laughs> cheese, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, Antonio, we finish up every episode with a property dumbo. Do you have an example for us of a property dumbo? It's a, a story that we can all learn from. Yeah, I've got a few. Um, well, I feel like that's a really pejorative term. Like I feel oh, it's like because it's the elephant no, in the I, room, I, I that's know, all. <laughs> I know, I get it. I feel like I'm always that person that says, no, there's no dumb questions. <laughs> but let's be honest, there probably is. Um, so there's a few things I'd say that I see people perhaps make a mistake um, in relation to. One is an interesting one, which is pest and building, right? Um, if you are just... Uh, if you are, if if someone else has engaged a pest and building inspector, and you read the report, absolutely that can be really valuable. But it's important to understand the fine print because chances are, if you end up buying the thing, you can't actually rely on that report because it's been commissioned. 
by the original vendor and there's something called privity in contract, which is really boring, but it basically means that the contract for that particular rapport is between the vendor and the person who wrote the thing. And so if you're going to do that, which can be great, saves you money and time, just make sure that you check if that can be assigned to you so that you can properly rely on it and if and if later on it, it proves to be incorrect or it's or there's negligence, you can actually do something about it. So that's one. And then the other big one that, you know, always uh, kind of blows my mind, and this is where people do buy a unit or an apartment and they don't understand the rights and the responsibilities that come with that. So I hear people say, oh, I'm just going to opt not to be part of the body corporate. I don't want to be involved in that. And it's, you know, of course, there's no choice about that. Once you become an owner, guess what? It's magic. So, you know, that one to me is really about before you buy something like that, it's important to understand that you are not buying a freestanding property, um, that you are buying into something that is uh, bigger than you are, if you like. And so really important that you go and you educate yourself about what are going what what does this mean? What are what are going to be my ongoing financial obligations and my ongoing legal obligations, not just in relation to the four walls that I occupy, but even in relation to the common areas and the other parts of that of that building. Um that's that's really, really important. Hundred percent. Great dumbos. And and it's all about basically consumers being more aware you know of, of the responsibility they're taking on thank you so much antonia that has been such an interesting chat i can't believe we got to cover all of those meaty topics and um and i really appreciate your your you know forthrightness and and willingness to come on and chat about them all so thanks so much for your time it's been a treat thanks so much for having me on if you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.